You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, we're recording in person live with a special guest today. This is Doug and Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast in Stokes Family Office. We have Drew Pearson. Drew is a recently launched podcast host. He's also a self-storage investor, developer extraordinaire, and we're interested in his perspective today and especially just talking about the local and regional real estate markets, his little niche that he's in. And then Drew's also going to post this on his podcast. So we'll have a little bit of back and forth and hopefully Drew can ask us about our firm as well. But Drew, anyway, thank you for joining and I appreciate you doing this. This is a long time coming. We've been talking about it for a couple of months. Yeah, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. It's going to be a ton of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me down. So Drew, why don't you just start it off and tell us about your company, maybe your background, how you launched your real estate private equity firm, the niche that you're addressing, and how you deliver returns for you and your investors. Sure. You know, growing up, I was kind of a B and C student. I was never the class president. I was never picked first for the baseball team. I was actually fired from my first W-2 job. But <laughs> there was always one idea that I really enjoyed, which was if we can buy real estate that's well-located, a tenant will pay it off for us and we'll make a return given a long enough time period. And I, I always understood that. Like, that's a great idea. And so I've really been kind of pursuing that idea for the last 15 years or so. Got out of school and became a commercial investment broker. 2009 was a terrible time to get started. I think I made $9,900 my first year out of college. It was just brutal. But we learned how to build a book of business. We learned how to grow and build relationships and ended up having a nice run as an investment sales broker, selling close to $100 million of real estate across the country. In 2015, my wife had the opportunity to go to Michigan to do some additional training. And so I said, well, I'm going to have to leave my brokerage background behind. What else can we do to kind of sharpen the sword, learn more about real estate? So I kind of cold called a real estate, what was a private equity firm. I wasn't sure what that was, but I I cold called them and said, hey, um, I want to come work for you guys. They said, great, starting salary is zero, but if you help us find something, we'll pay you. And I said, well, that sounded like a pretty good idea. So off we went to Michigan, to Ann Arbor, and it was really a great place to learn about the business, how to manage assets across state lines, how to raise investor capital, really kind of look beneath the hood of the business of running real estate. It was really a formative time. Got my first mentor in my, in my life, the founder of the company, but also the company kind of acted as a mentor too. How do we build a team? How do we build a structure to really do this? So I'm getting closer to my goal to owning real estate, but we're still not there yet. My wife and I have our first son. We have one on the way and realize it's, it's time to come on back home where it's a little bit warmer. And so we come back home in 18 and I start my firm, Pearson Partners. And we start acquiring some assets. We bought a single tenant industrial building that was vacant. We leased that up. We bought a multi-tenant medical office park next to the largest health center here in the state. We bought another single tenant industrial deal 
And then COVID hit. Kind of everything stopped at that point. And it was really a come to Jesus moment for me. I was like, do we have a real scalable strategy here? Or is this kind of an investment hobby? And are we going to really get serious? And so it was time to get serious, really burn the boats, created my own proprietary database of self-storage owners across the Southeast, cold called them all directly, built relationships with them. And we've really gone on a nice run the last couple of years. We now own nine stores in two states with 3,000 self-storage customers. We bought and sold one. So we had 10 at one time. And it's been a lot of fun. We kind of just started. It was just me. And now we're building a brand, First Stop Storage. And I've kind of done it all in self-storage. I've cut locks. I've swept out units. I was man the call center. I've taken credit card payments. I've arranged financing, kind of soup to nuts. I've done it all at this point. And there's still plenty to learn, but definitely kind of gotten our hands dirty. But what I'm really proud of is we're really growing that team out. We've hired a great head of operations with great experience. We now have six on-site managers. We're hiring two more this month. And that's what gets me excited, to really grow our business and our brand. It's going to come down to people and processes. And that's really where I'm spending my time and energy is how do we hire right? How do we build a culture? How do we build a team? How do we incentivize properly and overlay that onto our kind of value mindset of real estate and self-storage. And if we can get the people right, I think we can do some damage and have a lot of fun. I think intuitively, self-storage sounds like a great business model mm-hmm. because if you think about it, the tenants, you don't have to deal with people on a regular basis, typically when they move in, move out. Also, I'm sure there's statistics on this, but from the standpoint of turnover, I'm sure it's relatively low. So describe to me, this is just my general impression, but describe to me the general economics of self-storage and then in terms of why it's such an attractive asset class. And then also from the standpoint of what you do differently and what you look for when you're looking at an acquisition and from the standpoint of improving a property. Great. That's a great question. Well, let's kind of start high level, high level macro demand drivers. The demand drivers for storage are really Death, divorce, and dislocation or moving. Those things happen in good times and in bad. And so unlike a class A office tenant in a recession who needs to downsize his footprint, there is need regardless of economic times for this storage type. So I don't know if it's recession proof, but it certainly has some recession resistant type qualities. The second thing that really gets me excited is the diversity of tenants. We have 300 to 400 customers all paying rent on the first with their credit card and 80% of those people are in auto pay. While a single tenant, Walgreens is really nice. I can sleep even better with 300 people paying my rent. On top of that, we have a low CapEx and CapEx is the money we have to put into the property to keep it economically viable. Again, I'm going to go back to office. When a class A office tenant moves out, the landlord typically has to invest $20 a square foot So in a 10,000 square foot space, that's 200K to get a new tenant in there on top of a broker leasing commission. And that goes to carpet, paint, granite countertops, all the fancy stuff that fancy office folks need. When one of our tenants moves out, it's an $8 broom and an hourly employee, they sweep it out, we're ready to go. Oftentimes that same day, we have a new tenant in line, ready to go. So those are some of the kind of the three high levels of why I like it from a macro and micro perspective. What are we doing different? 
That's a good question. You know, I love the quote of, it's important to get rid of your best held ideas. I got into storage with this great idea, like you don't need people, you need a call center, you can automate this whole thing, you get credit card and it's you don't need people. And I'm not saying that won't work. In certain markets, high-end class A facilities, it certainly can work. But in the secondary and tertiary markets where we operate, you need someone on site the majority of the time. And so we've kind of gone from the, what they call unmanned or hub and spoke model, that's very lean on employees, to really the more traditional model, which is an on-site manager. We now have a regional manager. And we're really focusing hard on our systems and processes. I'm creating a first stop storage university. So this is a kind of a digital onboarding system from the day that you take a job that next week, you can understand our core values, how we do things. When we do a site audit, what's going to be expected of you? Here's the bar. Here's how you get to the bar. And I think that's really going to help us separate just from the typical mom and pop owner who has one store and just kind of micromanages. We want to find good people, tell them how to do their job, enable them to do their job, and then let them flourish. So the market that you operate in, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to attempt to dissect the market and understand from a competitive perspective who is operating in this arena. So you have what you'll call institutional quality investors, which are looking for larger scale footprints, have incremental return. They're probably buying from another institutional investor that's already done a lot of the legwork in improving the property or raising the rents, so to speak. And then you have this very wide market of I'll call sub-institutional quality mom and pop operators. You may own one or two storage facilities, and there are people that are high quality like you trying to find these you know, diamonds in the rough where maybe the people haven't raised rent in years, or maybe there's the ability to build additional units or to build some sort of operational efficiency in there to improve economics. And my perspective on this is that there are a lot of people trying to find those diamonds in the rough. So the first question I have is for somebody that's trying to operate in secondary and tertiary markets that's sub-institutional, not writing the, the huge mega checks that some of these big private equity firms will write. Mm-hmm. How do you find these deals when everybody else that's just like you is trying to do the same exact thing? Yeah, that's a great question. The real answer is just the grace of God and hard work. There's not a whole lot of people who like to do the work to create a database and then pick up the phone and make 100 calls and get 40 voicemails, 15 no's, three maybes, and one yes. You know, our success ratio is about one and a half to 2%. So if we've bought in 10, you can quickly do the math on how many phone calls I've made to find these. And I think it's just kind of good old fashioned persistence. You know, that was one of the things I learned in my brokerage career. We have basically a box. Here's our target. It's the Southeast Gulf South states. We can figure out how many storage owners we have. We have a game plan on when we contact them via mail, via phone. And it's just kind of blocking and tackling sales in addition with a, you know, kind of a good old boy attitude, you know, Hey, how you doing? How's the weather? How was church service last week? And that's who self-storage owners are. They're not fancy and sophisticated and neither am I. And so it's worked out pretty good. So I follow a couple of like 
storage gurus on Twitter. There's this one guy, Nick Huber. Yes. I'm sure you've seen him before. He's a great guy. So it seems like that this whole area has gotten a ton of interest. Mm-hmm. And so can you describe to me when you first got into this business versus the competitive landscape versus now? Because it seems like the same motto that you're talking about, which is rubber to the road, pick dialing, yep. low odds, but just persistence. That's the same philosophy that is basically being pushed to the masses. So what's it like now finding deals relative to what it was when you first got in business? That's a great question. I think like everybody, they wish it had gotten in five years earlier, but hey, we're in a good business now. We have seen this window of opportunity virtually slam shut. It is extremely challenging to find a facility above 35,000 feet in any state in the union at this point that is an attractive yield. So you're either going to have to expand that facility or swallow a very low return. It's more in large part to the brokerage community, not local investors. You know, the hats off to the brokerage community. They've done a great job of saying, hey, listen, here's what these properties are now worth. Here are some comparable sales. And if you've owned this property for 15 or 20 years and it's paid off, it can represent a very nice kind of exit for these 65-year-olds. Which it's forced us again to kind of go back to the drawing board. Now, what do we do? We can either do nothing, not buy anything. We can swallow a lower yield, which is even lower now because interest rates have gone up. Or you move into the development and conversion game. And as we look around and storage rates are at 95 to 100%, if you have any sort of risk tolerance, it's not hard to figure out where you're going to go. So right now I've got two conversion projects that we're working on under contract in markets we know and understand. And so I'm really excited about kind of taking that next step. Conversions are great. You reduce your risk. You already have a building there. There's concrete, there's a roof, there's HVAC. The permitting entitlement time period is much less with the city. And if you can get a hold of supply and demand, you can have a reasonable estimate on what your lease up's going to be like, what your rates are going to be like. And so the plan is to do a couple of those projects as we gain more and more confidence. We may dip our toe into the development game, but capital needs to be a lot more patient. You know, if we can feel comfortable with a five or six year outlook, you're going to be fine. It's when you really need to get things done in three or four years and start bringing capital back that you can kind of get yourself into a bind. Talk to me about, you mentioned earlier, what you think is interesting, the importance of building a team aligning incentives correctly. You mentioned setting up a university for your new hires to be able to learn day one how to operate one of these facilities. What's the end game there? As you build your portfolio out, you have a manager on site, a regional manager. You have your product management team that's on site or on staff. How important is team building to this particular space Are you trying to achieve operational efficiency to be able to increase yields? What's the ultimate end goal for improving your portfolio from an operational perspective and and team building perspective? I don't know is the honest answer. I want to treat people the best that I can. And I think we all want to, you know, if you're not an entrepreneur, I think when you show up to work, you want to know what's expected. Here's the lane you're going to be running in. Here's what success looks like. Now let's go win together. Instead of just being this Swiss army knife, like, hey, you're going to do one thing today, something else, and then you're going to run to the courthouse for me tomorrow. Like, 
People don't want to do that. And so I want to work really hard to create that structure for people and have the right people in the right seats. I have to believe that that will go to the bottom line. You know, people are the gas to the race car and these properties are race cars, but they need people to operate them. And I just think it helps build a better brand. It helps with the customer service side of this business. You know, it's not just like a single tenant industrial building. Like people come in, they buy boxes, they buy locks. This is grandmother's possessions. It's Some of the stuff is very sentimental, whether it has a high value or not, it's very sentimental to people. And so we want to be aware of that and people come into a big part of that. I don't know how big I want to grow the business and I don't really get caught up in that, but I want a beautiful business. And by beauty, I mean, you know, processes that are crisp. When we buy a new property, it kind of goes from one step to the next and people understand when we transition a property, the managers know what to expect and can clearly communicate. This is something I'm working on, which is like kind of customer onboarding something that Chris Powers does is when he has a new tenant, they have this whole video and welcome package. And it's like, what can we do? Can we send a welcome email or a short video from me? Here's what you can expect to all of our new customers. So I'm not sure, but we're really just trying to focus on the beauty of the business, onboarding, seamlessness, and trying to be the best we can. From the standpoint of your company is a private equity company, so you have private capital that invest in these deals. Can you explain to us the function of the general partner and limited partners? Do you have a fund or do you do a deal by deal type of arrangement? And is your long-term objective to have these simply cash flow or is the long-term objective to essentially sell them? So we operate like many private equity companies. You know, you have to be an accredited investor based on the SEC guidelines to invest with us. It's typically a $50,000 to $100,000 minimum check size. And, you know, we kind of have some different preferred returns, but we're shooting for that, you know, 13 to 15% kind of cash on cash return over the life of the hold. You know, I got into this really steeped in kind of the Buffett methodology, buy and hold forever. And I love Howard Marks. That said, I do think your investment portfolio is a little bit like a garden. And sometimes you need to plant a seed. Sometimes you need to water it. Sometimes you need to harvest. And so it's a longer term hold period, I would say, between five and 10 years. And we'll kind of reevaluate at those different check marks. I do know that as we build a portfolio within a geography, our portfolio becomes a lot more attractive. If we can get to 20 or 30 different stores with, with some scale and 10,000 customers, someone may make us an offer we can't refuse. And I think that'll be in the best interest of everybody. But if we decide not to, we'll just kind of keep rolling along. It's a great business. You know, self-storage has an 8% failure rate, which means 92% of these things succeed. It's just a heck of a business. So there's no real need to sell this. And the occupancy you mentioned is like 95% and above. Yeah. And it is right now. You know, there was a lot of building in the early 2000s and that occupancy dipped depending on the region. Maybe you were in the high 80s, mid 80s. But again, we have a real value-based perspective on these two conversions I'm doing. Our break-even is around 55% occupancy. So if we dip to 75%, we're going to be okay. You know, and that's kind of the core investment principle is just this value. We want to be at or below replacement costs. We want to rent to our commercial clients or our, our customers at or below market rent, our competitors. And we want to be in stable markets. 
If we can do that and put on reasonable debt, you know, put down 25, 30%, we're going to be okay over the long run. I'm not going to say everything's going to be right, but out of 40 or 50 acquisitions, we're going to be getting most right. That makes sense. So where are you looking from a geographic standpoint? You mentioned the Gulf South. Is there any specific areas that you have your eye on? Yep. I've got four kids, six, three, two, and six months. <laughs> it's a tight grouping there. So it's important for me to kind of get there and get back for dinner every night. That's, so that's kind of the deal. That puts us up maybe to Shreveport, where I'm from, maybe just past like Charles, Birmingham, maybe Pensacola. So really kind of the Gulf South states. We've been hit a lot by hurricanes lately down here. So not to say that we won't be on the coast, but if I can be north of I-10, that's all the better for insurance purposes. So that's kind of our target geography. And as we grow and continue to gain more confidence and learn about new markets, I wouldn't be surprised if we, you know, kind of extended that out. So as you continue to expand your business, and I can imagine you're going to stick in the real estate asset class, but as you mentioned earlier, as it relates to self-storage, either you accept lower returns, especially with interest rates increasing, or expand to develop or add on to existing product. Are there any other asset classes within called the whole real estate bucket that you find interesting right now? And is there a direction beyond self-storage that you're going? And maybe we can come back to the point, and you're going to be posting this on your podcast, so I, I want to tell you a little bit about us at some point, but we allocate money for a living amongst all different types of asset classes from stocks to bonds to private markets, mm-hmm. real estate included in there. And so our job is to find you know, where is the next great source of return going to come from within the confines of whatever restraints we have for a particular client. And I'm assuming you're thinking the same thing as it relates to your niche, especially in the real estate community, where is the next big thing and how are you thinking about that? That's a great question. I think I'm going to answer the question in two different parts. You know, there are great returns to be had right now in the Airbnb space. When we start looking at larger check sizes or allocating real capital, it's a challenge. If I was starting at zero today, I think I might be looking at the Airbnb to make some attractive returns. There's a lot of work to get scale there. And I think the old bread and butter that I've always loved is industrial. Single tenant's very, very competitive and yields are very low. But the multi-tenant kind of flex style product that was built in the early 90s is a great product. We don't have just a ton of it in the Gulf South region, but New Orleans has a fair amount. And there are some other large markets in the Gulf South with it. It's typically infill infill type locations. It's class B tenants who typically move around a lot, very low CapEx. And there's still a lot of what I will call kind of mom and pop ownership. couple of guys, maybe one guy was a developer who built it. And we've seen this a lot. If you can build a portfolio, then you can really you know have a nice exit. Okay. So what you mean by that is, and you're alluding to this in self-storage, but by building a portfolio... Real estate is generally valued on a cap rate basis. So that's your unlevered yield, you can call it that. So, for example, if you're going and you're knocking on doors and you're doing all the legwork to go from, you know, to 100 different self-storage operators and maybe get one person to bite, then realistically you're paying a lower price for that product than 
if you were to have 10 or 20 of these and somebody called on you and said, hey, I want to just buy your whole portfolio up. Absolutely. You're going to be paying a higher price for that because that's a lot less legwork than going door to door. Absolutely. And so somebody in your position, one of the exit opportunities would be to go to one of these institutional players that we were talking about earlier and saying, hey, instead of you going door to door, I've done all the work for you. I paid a cap rate of X, let's call it you know, 8% from just some round number, you pay me a cap rate of 5%. That difference, so lower cap rate is better for the seller. Yeah. That is a pretty significant difference in, in return, almost almost double in that particular case. All the while, what you've done is increased the cash flow, theoretically, because you've raised the rents of all of your customers since you acquired the property. Mm-hmm. And so you've got higher cash flows at a higher valuation because somebody is buying your whole portfolio. Is that really the theory there? That's the theory. Yeah. Okay. If you wanted to sell, that's a very reasonable expectation. Okay. And so it's interesting that you mentioned class B industrial. And, and this is also something you and I both personally know. Chris Powers, who executes the strategy in the DFW area, he's gone beyond that now. And I think I was his first tenant ever, but in a, <laughs> that's in, awesome. a, in a house in college. But that's an also an interesting area in which it's sub-institutional, typically. Mm-hmm. And by sub-institutional, what you're really trying to target is lower valuation. Am I correct by that? Correct. Correct. So I view that as the next great thing is always going to be something where the big private equity companies will come in after the fact that they see a trend emerging. Their check sizes are too big to actually enter the market. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the hustlers like you out there have done a lot of the legwork, they'll come in and write checks because their return requirements are lower than maybe yours are. Yeah, and they have a lower cost of capital than I do. But I think if we go back to the fundamentals, look, we all need people to repair the AC, to sell valves and widgets. And those are the tenants in these you know, 60,000 square foot industrial parks with 15 tenants. There's 20% office, 80% unconditioned warehouse space with a roll-up door in the back. You have three or four employees and a truck. Those are the typical tenants in these properties. They're paying, you know, $8, 10 $12 a square foot. So it's not a huge monthly rent amount. And we need this blue-collar work more than ever. On top of that, you know, if we wanted to go build brand new it would cost us all of $140 a square foot with dirt price to build it. It would take 18 months to build it, another three years to lease it up. Four and a half years, 140 bucks a foot. Or we could buy it today, 80 bucks a foot. You know, maybe you have to replace a roof or an AC unit, put five bucks into it, and you have a stabilized asset. I think it makes a lot of sense. How do you think about the risk of, you mentioned earlier, yeah, it's nice to have Walgreens as a tenant, but you prefer to have 300 tenants that are essentially on auto pay paying you monthly. On other asset classes like industrial, where there may be three or four tenants with maybe an average lease term of two or three years, one of the risks there is that they don't release. They have to find a new tenant. What's your thought process on the risk of leases terming out and having to yeah, have vacancy. Right. You know, I think it all depends. And price can cure a lot of this. You know, we own some properties with 
triple B credit rated companies like Train and Exxon and Johnson Controls, LabCorp, fantastic companies. But we also have some local physicians and other people like that. So we can kind of balance personal guarantees on on companies that don't have traditional credit. Maybe they're private companies. We can get diversity where I don't mind a bunch of short-term leases if there's 10 companies in the office park or industrial park. But then sometimes it's almost better in today's market to have a short-term lease. If the tenant's paying six bucks a foot and market is now nine bucks a foot and there's no vacancy in the market, as a landlord, it's actually more beneficial to have the short-term lease. So maybe we can restructure the lease or kind of bring things back closer to market and get a nicer return. So in terms of these these releases, typically what happens is you have to improve the the product on a release. And you mentioned Class A office. You got to spend twenty dollars a foot to really improve the uh, the product before the next tenant comes in. What really happens in industrial real estate? Do you have to do a whole lot? It's very minimal. I mean, typically it's three to five bucks a foot. You know, we kind of have a standard light gray, like an apple gray that we paint on the walls. No one really complains about that. There's rubber base molding on the floors. You either have carpet square tile, so you can like peel up spots that are heavily used, or we'll just move towards a, like a ceramic tile that lasts for 30 years. And so it's it's really pretty minimal and we're good to go. And again, these, these folks have low expectations. They just, they don't have customers coming in, their boots are dirty and they don't really care. Let's talk about the, make a transition to tax efficiency of why is real estate so attractive? Why the wealthiest people on earth, generally speaking, have built their empires via acquisition of real estate. And a lot of that is due to the tax efficiency of the asset class. Can you talk about how you think about how attractive tax efficiency is to the products and projects that you're investing in? It's really an incredible thing. I mean, for folks who, who've never invested in commercial real estate, a lot of our first-time investors will get their K-1, which is the statement at the end of the year showing their distributions and their equity in the project, and they pay close to no taxes. Like it's almost like magic. It's incredible. And you just take advantage of some very simple things that the IRS lays out for you. Depreciation, which is a write-off, and your interest expense. Now, depreciation is real. It's not like... We do have to replace roofs and parking lots, but on a short-term basis, that really does help your tax efficiency on your cash flow. And the next bucket you can take advantage of, which is cost segregation. We don't do that with all of our properties. It's kind of on a deal-by-deal basis, depending on our kind of hold strategy and some other things. But cost segregation essentially lets you take accelerated appreciation of certain assets like your plumbing or your copper or your roof. So instead of a 40-year depreciation schedule, you get it down to 15 years and it allows you to kind of take some upfront losses. And if you're going to hold the property five to seven years, a lot of times those, those write-offs will kind of balance out. Now, if you sell in, a, in 12 months, you have to kind of pay back all of that depreciation. But again, it's a beautiful thing. You know, another reason why the wealthiest people in the world and real estate is because the value of it may fluctuate, just like I'm sure some of the, the valuations of some of your current holdings might be down presently, but you're not seeing a statement to reflect the valuation of that on a regular basis. Absolutely. As long as you get your cash flows, as long as your tenants are paying your cash flows, you might have some increased expenses from interest rate increases. Yep. 
But other than that, the checks basically keep coming in. So the valuation is not as in your face as like stocks. Right. There's almost, maybe you've heard of this, it's like an illiquidity premium. Like mm-hmm. it's almost better to be illiquid in these assets. And that's why a home is oftentimes people's best investment is because they can't sell it. And after 20 years, that's like, wow, this is, this has worked out. I agree hundred percent. And so I've heard people say that real estate is generational type of money for that reason. Right. And I think another reason that the best families get into it is for that reason, generationally, you can hire a third party manager. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to run these things. It's not like a business where there's lots of moving parts and it's just a great long-term deal. Right. And from the standpoint of self-storage, there is a mailbox money component to it because if you just think about it high level, it's such a pain for people to move all their stuff out of there. Mm -hmm. So there is super high occupancy in general. And it's also, there's very little turnover because it is such a pain to go through the process of cleaning that out. And then where do you put all this stuff, right? Right. We're basically just delaying making decisions. Right. Once it's in the storage unit, you've made the decision. You know, we know once we get our customers in the unit for three months, on average, they'll be there 22 months. And so as long as we can get folks there and comfortable and, you know, credit cards and auto pay, they're going to be around a while. So how do you incentivize people to sign up? Do you offer them like a free month or... You know, we don't do any of that kind of stuff, right? The business is good right now. We're fortunate to be in good markets. On average, you know, we average in the mid-90s on occupancy. And on our more in-demand units, climate control and 10 by 20s, we oftentimes have a waiting list. So there's not a whole lot of demand or not as much demand for your smaller type of units that are not climate controlled. Right. Our 5 by 10s non-climate are our slowest to move units. Oftentimes, you know, we inherit this unit mix. We bought it. But people had them in there on the ends of different units just to kind of get a higher per square foot and offer the you know variety of product type. So are you taking that knowledge that you've learned elsewhere in your practice and applying it to your conversion projects that you're building right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, there's no perfect science, but we're just trying to blend our market demand and uh, what we need to achieve from an annual cash flow standpoint, kind of backing into what we think will work best. I think it's fascinating what you said about Class B industrial and that that's not really something that institutional investors have discovered quite yet. From our perspective, it's you see these asset classes in real estate, like self-storage that has been somewhat discovered by the institutional investment community. And something that also is really fascinating that's there's a tremendous stickiness associated with it is trailer park investing. Right. That's gotten a tremendous amount of popularity and the institutional investors come in in a big way just because it costs a lot of money for those folks to move. And so that's cost prohibitive, basically, and for their good tenants as well, too. Bingo. So I think it's really fascinating to hear your thoughts about where's next. And I've heard the same thing about Airbnb as well, too, from a just economic standpoint that people can take small, relatively small square footage places and lease them out on a day-to-day basis in big metropolitan areas yep. and make a whole lot of money. So it'll be interesting to see how that gets scaled. but. Anyway, Drew, it was a pleasure having you in here yeah. and learning about your business. If you have any questions for us, if you want to, we'd love to have you back on the podcast at some time, but you'll be sharing this on your podcast as well, too. So this is just Greg Stokes closing out. Thanks for joining us today on Lanyard Podcast with Drew Pearson, and I hope you guys have a great day. If you like this podcast, give it five stars, share it with your friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. 
This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.